So once there was this emperor, uh, and he was just incredibly wealthy. Uh, but the thing was, he was also incredibly vain. Uh, instead of using his wealth and his power to care about his kingdom and his people and the things that mattered, uh, what he really cared about was having the latest and greatest and the best of everything. Uh, specifically clothes, of all things. Uh, he just had to have the trendiest outfits, the wealthiest looking outfits um, that drew the most attention. And so he was ripe for the picking when these two tricksters came to town and convinced him that they were able to make special clothes that had never been seen before. Uh, opulent, beautiful, wealthy looking clothes, but so light and so unique that uh, if somebody was only able to see them if they were worthy of their role, worthy of the job that they were doing, uh, which you know we would all know is just a sham, but this king was so caught up in his vanity, he just had to have it. And so he gave them gobs of money uh, to make these clothes. And he waited and he waited, and finally one day they come to the court, to his, to his royal court with these magical clothes. And you can imagine his horror when he realizes, I, I can't see the clothes. They're just holding up nothing to me. But he's so deceived. He's so bought up in, uh, caught up in the lie that he acts like he can see him. Because, of course, he can't be found out as unworthy for his role. And as the emperor goes, so goes his court. Uh, and everyone has this individual experience of saying, oh, no, I can't see it. The, I must not be worthy of my role, but I can't let anyone know. And so they play along with the deception, which feeds his deception. Uh, and this, this cycle goes down. And so the next thing you know, in the royal court, here's this king stripping down naked as a jaybird, putting on fake clothes uh, that, that no one can see. And, and everyone's acting like, it's oh, this is amazing. This is these beautiful clothes, so impressive. Well, he's so full of himself now because now he buys the lie that they're actually there, even though he can't see them, that he decides he wants to reinforce his, his, magnet, his majesty and, and have a parade through town. So the whole court rallies and they put together this amazing immaculate parade through town. And the word has gotten out to all of his subjects about these clothes, that if you're not worthy of your job, you won't be able to see them. So they all buy into the lie. And so the next thing you know, this emperor is marching down Main Street just plain naked. Uh, and everyone is saying, ooh, ah, what amazing, beautiful clothes. Until this fateful moment when this little kid just kind of raises his hand and looks and says, hey, does anyone else notice the emperor is naked? And this hush falls over the crowd, and everyone realizes that they'd been had. And the emperor is standing there on Main Street, surrounded by his subjects, stark naked. Uh, so why do I tell you that story? Uh, because really, I think it has a ton to do with our study this last week of Summit uh, in Laodicea. Uh, the letter to Laodicea is the last letter that Christ writes to uh, the churches of Revelation, and uh, it's a striking indictment on his followers in Laodicea, the church there. Uh, and it has a lot to do with this, this, this uh, story of the emperor's new clothes. And let's dive right in. We're in uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, when Jesus picks up and introduces himself. And as you know from previous studies with us in this, in this series, uh, we go with a pretty consistent framework for each of the letters. We're seeing Christ. We're seeing commendation, correction, and confidence. And so we're not surprised in verse 14 when Christ introduces himself. He says this, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Um, and so what he's basically doing is he's introducing himself like that kid in the story of the emperor's new clothes. He says, I'm the one kid, the one person who's going to raise his hand and say, this is how things actually are. 
So the, the key word for me when I look at uh, um, the letter to the Laodiceans uh, for Christ is direction. He's going to provide direction. The image in my mind is of a compass who's pointing to true north. And like that kid in the story, he's not just saying, hey, Laodicea, you're wrong. He's saying, no, you actually think that's north, but it's really south. You're not just wrong. You're the exact opposite of right. Uh, you're not clothed. You're naked. And he's willing to just lay out this really uncomfortable observation, regardless of the implications. Uh, why do I say that? Well, look at how he introduced himself. He says he is the amen. In the original language, that word is the same word Jesus has used when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, amen, amen. It's the same word. And so he's saying, look, I'm the truly, I'm the verily, I'm the certainty. And then he goes on, he says, I'm the faithful and true witness, faithful, trustworthy, I, and, and a witness who has seen it and is testifying to what is real. And what's he testifying to? Well, he goes on. He says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. He is God. He was there. He created all of it. He, Colossians 1, he holds all things together by the intention of his will. He knows what works. He understands the physics of the universe. He understands the physics of marriage, the relationships, spirituality. He understands how all these things really are supposed to work better than anyone. He made it. And so when he says, look, that's north, and you're actually going south thinking it's north, he's right. And the question for you and the question for me, like that emperor, is are we going to hear that or not? Especially when it's uncomfortable, when it's incisive, when it goes right into the very guts of who we are, when it challenges every inch we've ever walked, when it challenges the direction of every aspect of our life and says you're going the wrong way. When it, when it gets that uncomfortable, are we willing to accept that he really is the true and faithful witness and to hear him? Are we willing to accept that you might be living in that dream of one day realizing that you're walking around without any pants on. Are you willing to accept that? Even when everyone around you, everything inside of you and everyone around you has bought into the same lie you have. He's going to be the one person to raise his hand. And that's what he's doing right here for Laodicea. And honestly, gentlemen, I think that's exactly what he's doing for you and me. So you'll see here, he doesn't give any immediate commendation at all. He just jumps right into correction. As I said, it's an incisive indictment on the church in Laodicea, just like it is for us. So he goes on in verse 15, he says this, here's the problem, guys. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, and this is what gets so much press in this text. Everybody loves to talk about hot and cold and lukewarm. I mean, that'll preach. It preaches really well. It's a huge image. But guys, this isn't what he's going to say to this church. It's just an image. A lot of people read a lot into this image that cold or hot matters a lot. You know, if you're cold, you're bad. But at least you know you're bad. If you're hot, you're fervent and passionate about Christ. And sure, okay, maybe that's in there. But the text never says it. Guys, I think it's as simple as this. I love cold brew. And I love a good hot coffee. It's the same liquid. They're both the same thing. It's about their temperature that makes them good. If you've ever walked into a room, though, and found the cup of coffee that you thought was hot or cold, and you went to take a drag and a sip of this coffee, and you find out that it's actually been sitting there for hours and maybe has a bug in it or something like that, it's disgusting. You just want to vomit it back into the cup. That's the image. The image is just one simply of disgust. The power of this image isn't so much the temperature. And I know if you've studied, and I hope you have, you know there's a lot of cultural interplay here with Laodicea, this whole cold and hot water idea and lukewarm water. Um, and so it's a, it's a straight shot to them to go after that image. But all the image is really talking about, it's not talking about the state of the church so much as the state of Christ in relationship to that church. 
that's what we miss so often, focusing on the idea that maybe this passage is trying to make us, you know, be more passionate Christians. If you were hot, you were fervent and passionate and moving. Let me tell you something. I've seen a lot of fervent, passionate, busy Christians who are lukewarm, according to this text. Uh, I've seen a lot of people very busy doing a lot of the things of Christ, who I think Christ will say in the end, I never knew you. you I, but, and they'll say, I did this in your name. And he'll say, I, st- I never knew you. And I think that's what this text is getting at, not to get you fervent, not to get you passionate where you aren't, uh, but to confront you with something completely different. Um, and that's the correction. All right. So uh, the, he's going to he's going to just frame up this correction with this image of cold and hot and lukewarm. And really, the power of the image is I'm disgusted. I want to vomit you out of my mouth because, frankly, and here's the key word for this for this portion of the text is deception. You've been deceived. Let's let the text tell us what it means to be lukewarm, because I don't think lukewarm has anything to do with your fervor. The text tells us what it means to be lukewarm in verse 17. He says I, in verse 16, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to vomit you out of my mouth because here's why. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's not about passion. That's about perspective. That's about the state of your heart in relationship to Christ. You think you have need of nothing. There's an area of your life or your whole, the, the whole scope of your life where you think that you are functionally independent. You think your resource, your wealth, whether that's material wealth or wealth of knowledge or wealth of reputation or wealth of whatever, you think that on some level that equals you being functionally independent, that you can manage something on your own. That's what makes you lukewarm. That's what it means to be lukewarm. That's what it means to be disgusting to the heart of God. And he's going to explain what he means uh, by that in more depth. He's going to say, uh, and it's such a profound statement. He says, you say you're rich. He's not saying that you actually are. He says, you say you're rich. You say you have need of nothing. And you do not know the truth. This is, again, this is our compass, our director, our faithful witness speaking to us who knows how things work. He says, you say this, you're convinced of this, but you do not know the reality. And that is that you are wretched and miserable. Now, for an American, those words sound like words of disgust. And maybe there's some disgust in there. But I think in the original culture, that had more to do with economics. That idea of being wretched and miserable is how you would describe a beggar on the street. You're wretched and you're miserable. You're destitute. You think you're wealthy. You're actually destitute. You think you're popular. You're actually not. You think that you have standing in society. You actually, in reality, don't. Even though everybody's convinced with you that you're awesome, you're not. And he's going to explain what he means by that with three key words. And again, these are a shot straight to the Laodicean Laodicean kidneys, right? He says, in fact, you are poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Now, if you know from the study of Laodicea, you know that that was a banking center, right? And so the amount of actual physical cash in the city limits of Laodicea was just unbelievable. Uh, historically, that's a place where emperors, kings might actually go to kind of cash their checks so they could pay soldiers out. Like there's so much cash there. It was unbelievable. It was a banking center, a major center of commerce. And so for him to call them poor as a city and as a church is a real indictment, a real shot against you think you've got cash. Yeah, you've got a lot of metal in your hands, but you're actually poor. 
Uh, and then he says, you're blind. Well, again, Laodicea, it's, it's a, it was a center that was known around the world for its medical prowess. It under, had a lot of medical knowledge. Uh, specifically, it figured out, too, as business people, how to make a commodity out of that. And so they sold uh, a, a salve that would heal the eyes and a salve that would heal the ears. They were known for those things. And so for him to say that you're blind is to shot right at that whole medical know-how. Uh, you know, it was like a city that had the, the premier hospital in it. And, and he's saying, yeah, you guys can't even fix yourself. Yeah, I know you have, your eyes are fine, but your perspective is broken. And then he says, you're naked. Another thing about Laodicea, they had this really great black wool. Again, they turned that into a commodity. They figured out how to make it into a, a tunic that was easy export, easy to export. And so they made gobs of money off of these black tunics. And of course, they had them. Uh, and so for him to say that they're naked just didn't make sense. But what he's doing is he's saying, you have these tangible things that, that convince you that you're clothed and that you can see and that you're wealthy. But in the areas that really matter, you're actually poor, blind, and naked. You're deceived. What you, what your north is actually south. Your west is actually east. He goes on and he's now going to give him some advice. He says, this is my advice to you. And it's, it's kind of uh, a jab because he's not commanding them. He's, he's condescending to their perspective, like a CEO in the boardroom getting advice from some consultant that he hired, right? Like Jesus is coming in on the side as a consultant. Here's, my, here's how I would advise you, emperor, wealthy one who thinks he understands how things work, who's convinced that he has control of the levers of his life. Let me give you some advice. Buy from me, he says, gold, garments, and if you'll forgive me, goo. Buy from me gold garments and goo. Gold, hey, he said you were poor, blind, and naked. He says, so buy from me the solution to your to your destitution. All right? He says, buy from me for your nakedness clothes. Buy from me for your blindness some eye salve. And the so that's are really insightful. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, actually rich. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see how things really are. What does he mean by this whole buy from me thing? It might be a kind of a confusing analogy. And so let me take you back to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. It's an image that he uses here and there throughout the scripture, this idea of come to me, buy from me. This is what he says in Isaiah. He says, hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Then he asks a really insightful question. He says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So he's saying, buy it from me. You, you think you've got your resources, uh, uh, buy from me instead. Uh, the image that comes to my mind that probably best explains what he's getting at here is the image of the rich young ruler. Maybe you've heard that story from Mark chapter 10, where this rich guy comes to Jesus, says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, oh, that's great. I've done that since my youth. Uh, what am I still lacking? He says, and Jesus looks at him seeing the very same thing I think that he sees in the Laodiceans. And he says, well, take all of that wealth of yours, sell it, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. And you know what happens. The rich young ruler walks away sad. And then Jesus says one of the most powerful texts out there. He says, um, man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are besides themselves, beside themselves and they say, whoa, then how can anyone be saved? Because they recognize the wealth that's out there. And, and uh, he says, hey, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so in effect, he, what he was doing with the rich young ruler and what he's doing with Laodicea and what he's doing, honestly, gentlemen, with me and my heart and what I think he's probably doing for a lot of you right now is, is saying the same thing he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He says, uh, hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses is like, it's, it's a staff. Rich young ruler says, it's all of my wealth and reputation. Laodiceans say, it's, it's the economic well-being that we have that supports everything that we do, that gives us identity. You know, for me, uh, you know, even as recently as a year ago, I would have I said, it's my reputation. I can't confess that I have still got an issue with pornography. I can't confess that. It would ruin me. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't trust people with that. I can't do what you're asking me to do, Jesus, to be healthy, to be whole, to, to love you, to love people around me, because that would threaten my economic well-being or my relational well-being. And he looks at Moses and says, what's in your hand? Moses says, it's a staff. And I'm saying, it's, you know, my secret sin, or it's my stuff, or it's this half a million dollar house you've got, maybe, in the wrong location that makes it hard for you to be in community. Uh, whatever it is. And, and, and his next words to Moses are this. He says, throw it down. And Moses throws it down. And, and all of a sudden, this staff, shoot, man, I think that staff, if someone wrote a biography of that staff, it would be a cooler biography than the biography of my life. What God can do with a stick, let alone with my reputation, let alone with your money, let alone with your house, your car, your family, your job, Whatever it is that you're clinging to that says, I have need of nothing in any given area of your life. What I see Jesus doing to Laodicea is what I see him doing with the, the, the rich young rulers, what I see him to do with Moses, what I see him doing with me, what I see him doing with you. He's saying, what's that in your hand? Throw it down. And so, guys, that takes us to this issue of confidence at the end of the text. He's, he, he, he gives us the kidney punch that we need. He gives us the challenge. He tells us what repentance is. And then he gives us a vision for what could be, for what really matters. In verse 20, he starts this confidence section. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this is a really rich passage. Again, kind of like the lukewarm passage, it preaches really well. Um, but I think we misread it often. This is part of the, the idea here is that he's outside the doors of the church. Remember, he's talking to a church. He's not talking to individuals per se. He's talking to a church when he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This isn't, that's not a passage about eternal security. That's a passage about a church that is just that he's about to remove the lampstand front, as he said to a previous church. Uh, and in the same sense here in verse 20, he's talking to a church. He said, I'm outside of the door of your love feast, as it were, your church service. I'm not even involved. You're all having a blast and I'm not even there. Um, and he says, I'm knocking on the door. If any one of you, he says, in that church were to come and open the door for me, I will go in and dine with him and he with me. The key words here that I want to emphasize, and there's a lot we could say, though, is, is the with. When I, well, the reason I, I put this together with the confidence is that the idea here, what matters here is the with. That Jesus, as disgusted as he is with the state of that church, 
He's still got an eye for the individual. He pursues those people. He's disgusted and yet pressing into that disgust to pursue those people. He's knocking on the door of the church, not your heart, the church. And, and anyone in that church, that broken, broken church, that will open the door and invite him in, he will dine with him and he with me. That idea that Jesus actually wants to be with you, the naked guy who's convinced he's clothed, the guy who is basically uh, uh, telling Jesus he's pointless and worthless with the way that he lives his life, even as disgusting as that is, Jesus is knocking and, and saying, hey, open the door and I will come dine with you. I'll show you what wealth really is. I'll show you what it means to be whole just simply by being with me. This has nothing to do with stuff. It has to do with relationship. And that's what he's saying here. And I emphasize the with because look, in verse 21 uh, and, and 22, he goes on, he says, he who overcomes, there's our Nike, there's our overcome, right? He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, just as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, there's plenty we could emphasize there, but that idea of with, four times he talks about with, relationship, proximity. So be with Christ. What's that in your hand? Throw it down and walk with Jesus. Follow me. So, you know, we really could and maybe should end it here, but I can't help myself. I want to see if you noticed that I skipped a verse. Um, as I said, you know, there, doesn't, there didn't seem to be any apparent commendation in this text anywhere. Uh, he just jumps right into correction, uh, which was pretty stark. And a lot of people would say this is a church of unbelievers, and maybe they're right. Although I don't know how they still have a lampstand at all if there are no believers there. Um, and here's why I would emphasize that. If you look at verse 19, I'm going to, uh, I just want to read it for you. It says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, a couple key ideas. One, that word love. Uh, typically, when God says, I love you, he's using a Greek word, agape, uh, this idea of self-sacrificing love. It's intense. It's what describes his love on the cross. And nine times out of ten, he's going to use that word to describe his love. And so when a lot of so, – so you might not realize this word love here is actually the same word from Philadelphia. Phileo, I, I love you. It's a brotherly love, and it kind of gets bad press compared to agape. But do you know what's interesting? I'm pretty convinced I can agape you and still not like you very much. I can sacrifice my life for you even if I think you're a complete jerk and don't have any real deep affection for you. It's possible. But you can't phileo somebody. You can't brotherly love somebody without some emotion, without some attachment. It's a family word. It's a passionate word, actually. It's a deep sense of brotherhood kind of word. It's not a small term. So when he says, I love you, he's not talking here about the self-sacrificing. He's saying, I actually want to be around you. I actually want you near me. I see you as family. You know, he's quoting from Proverbs 3 here, actually, when he says, those whom I love, I discipline. That's a passage that's written to Israel, God's people. And, and you, you, know, you know who else quotes this is the writer to the book of Hebrews, to, to the churches uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews. And, and he says in, verse, in chapter 12, he, he goes on and on about this exact same phrase. He says, uh, God disciplines those whom he loves. In fact, he makes the point that uh, you shouldn't be worried if God is disciplining you. You should be worried if he's not, because if he's not disciplining you, there's a good chance you're not a believer. That's his argument in Hebrews 12. And if he is, there's a good chance you are. And so I see this as a strong 
scathing indictment to a church where there's at least some believers. And what he's saying is in the midst of that scathing indictment, the truth teller is saying, I love you. So here's the commendation. The commendation is discipline. And the commendation is he loves you enough in your brokenness. Man, I, I can't tell you how often the, the most intense experiences I've seen of grace and experienced of grace have been in those moments when I have no, nothing to commend about me. I bring nothing to Jesus. I am fundamentally broken. I'm the guy in the crowd with no pants on. There's no recovering from that. There's no covering that. And it's in that space where he's pointing out that problem and he's saying, I love you enough to help cover you, to help you see. Just walk with me. What's that in your hand? Throw it down. Recognize that whatever's in your hand, your reputation, your stuff, your job, your family, it's a stewardship to serve Christ with. It's not something that gives us identity. Let's get that sorted out. Let's come to Christ. Let's let him sort that out for us. That's the challenge with the church at Laodicea Men. <laughs>